When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 135, and it's the second on a series of episodes on Tudor London. Today, we're going to talk about the rivers of London and London Bridge. So just a couple of quick bits of admin. We have TudorCon tickets still on the early bird price until the end of the year, actually until the 7th of January, because we keep the 12 days of Christmas here, just like they did in the Tudor period. So until the 7th of January, we have the TudorCon tickets for October 2nd through 4th. TudorCon is three days of learning and feasting and new friendships in beautiful Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, October 2nd through 4th. So go to englandcast.com slash TudorCon2020 to see a video of last year, well, this past one, and testimonials and learn more about it, see speakers, everything like that. Also, if you're looking for fantastic Tudor holiday holiday gifts, you can still go to TudorFair.com. Some holiday deadlines are coming up for some of the stuff because it is made to order. So you have to get your orders in by about the 10th or so, 10th to 12th of December in order to have Christmas delivered. So check out tutorfair.com for all of your Tudor holiday gift giving needs. So let's move on and talk about Tudor London. And in this little mini series, I'm talking specifically about what 16th century London was like for our Tudor friends. This is the second episode, and it's sort of this feature on life in 16th century cities with several episodes on Tudor London. And like I said last time, I am talking about landmarks, but I'm doing it in the context of their impact on the lives of real people, because that is what I'm most interested in here. Landmarks and buildings are interesting only to me insofar as the stories that they can tell about the people who lived there, who died there, who laughed, cried, grieved, worshipped, and had fellowship with others there. So there are show notes available for this episode at englandcast.com slash London Bridge. englandcast.com slash London Bridge for all the show notes and sources. So last week we talked about St. Paul's, particularly the booksellers and orders of St. Paul's Cross and the churchyard. Today we're going to talk about what is perhaps the most important part of London, the piece that gave it its personality and impacted it more than anything else. 
I am talking, of course, about the rivers. And notice I said rivers with an S. When we think about London today, we think, of course, about the Thames, and we will talk about that, particularly London Bridge. But what you may not realize is that there are several rivers that run through London, and today they are paved over and they run underground as part of the sewage system. But they would have been part of everyday life for our Tudor friends, boundaries that they would have been deeply familiar with. 21 tributaries flow to the Thames within Greater London, and that's just counting the main branches. Some of these will be familiar to you by their names, like Fleet Street, which is named after the River Fleet. Some of the rivers sound exotic, like Silk Stream or the Ching River. Some are still above ground in the suburban areas outside the city, like the Moselle that runs through North London. During, these, during the Tudor period, these rivers shaped the lives of our friends living there. They were valleys and hills created by the rivers that would have been part of the everyday landscape. But over time, the rivers began to get in the way. Early on, London needed her rivers. She needed them for drinking water, for wharves, for carrying away waste, and for the early sewage system. The earliest river to be paved over was the Walbrook, which reached the Thames right around the Cannon Street train station. This river ran deep in London's history. It was right where the earliest Roman settlement was built. And even now, the artifacts that are found there have images of the ancient gods carved into them. But by the 1460s, the Walbrook was filthy, and it became too much for medieval London to handle. And the river was paved over, the first of the rivers to go underground. By the Victorian period, as London was growing at supersonic speed, the rivers and the filth that they carried put off home buyers, and soon enough, the Tyburn was hidden under muse houses. The fleet was the stuff of legends. Christopher Wren actually redesigned it as a canal after the Great Fire of London, but still the smell and the garbage, all of it was too much. Tom Bolton writes in an article, Jonathan Swift in 1710 wrote about the fleet filled with the sweepings from butcher stalls, dung, guts, and blood. A few years later, Alexander Pope described how Fleet Ditch rolls the large tribute of dead dogs to the Thames. Yet, before the river became more trouble than it was worth, it was a crucial route in as well as out. Everything from Welsh cheese to coals from Newcastle arrived at the Fleet Wharves, and even the stones for Old St. Paul's Cathedral were unloaded there. So that's from an article that Tom Bolton wrote. He has a book about the history of London rivers, so I link to that in the show notes so you can check that out. The rivers are everywhere in London. Buckingham Palace is actually built above the Tyburn, and in fact there's still one very tiny tributary which still exists in the basement of a Mayfair antique store, Grays. And some of the topography of London makes sense only when you examine the flow of the rivers, and they make certain names make sense, such as Knightsbridge, which of course would have once been called the Knights Bridge because there was a bridge there. Also, the Oval is called the Oval because that was the shape of the River Afra. So names start to make sense as you start to understand these rivers. So we can start to get this sense of London as a metropolis filled with rivers and flowing water. And I think that helps to give us more of a picture of the city when you imagine all of the waterways that flowed through it and the homes that were surrounded by water. This helps also to make sense of the amount of plague that was present every year in the summer. It must have been a damp, muddy, stinking place. 
No wonder anyone who could afford to actually left. But let's talk now about the most famous river, the Thames, which originates in Oxfordshire, flows for 215 miles until it reaches the sea at Gravesend. The river actually gathers silt as it moves. It makes it a gray color. It's a tidal river with high tides twice a day. And during those tides, the difference in the water level is up to 25 feet. The Lord Mayor of London had control over everything from Staines to the Medway after a deal with Richard I in 1197, and that gave the city the power to create traffic rules on the approach to the city that were uniform rules. So in 1592, the German visitor Thomas Platter took the ferry and wrote that the banks of this river are wooded and gay with pleasant hamlets and homesteads. Along the way, there were huge palaces like Placentia at Greenwich with private stairways leading down to the river and water gates that would allow the royal visitors easy access on their barges. Just before London Bridge were the official keys where you had to unload your cargo to pay customs duties and taxes. In the last episode, I mentioned the travel writer noticing these cranes. These cranes that unloaded the cargo were big enough for a man to actually sit inside them. By using pulleys, the ship could be unloaded easily to carts, and then you didn't have to manually do it. If you wanted to continue on to the other side of the bridge, you would actually have to get off at London Bridge and take another boat. This is because of the currents that ran under the bridge, because of the arches that went across the river, which then funnels the water through to smaller locations. If you tried to go under the bridge, it was called shooting the bridge. It was only possible if the conditions were absolutely perfect. In 1554, Elizabeth I was sent to the tower, well, she was Princess Elizabeth then, when Mary, her sister, suspected her of plotting against her, and Elizabeth experienced a frightening attempt to go under the bridge. The barge could not shoot the arch and lay hovering upon the water for a time. The danger was too great for the bargemen to plunge into it as they were ordered. Their unwillingness gave way to preemptory command, but in trying it again, the stern of the boat struck the ground. The fall was so big, the water was so shallow, the boat paused for a while under the bridge, and at last cleared it, and she was landed at Trader's Gate. It must have been an absolutely petrifying experience. Reverend John Ray, in his book of Proverbs from 1670, said that London Bridge was for wise men to pass over and fools to pass under. People who wanted to cross the river could do so using a ferry across the waterman. That was the earliest form of boat taxis, like black cabs, only on the water. It would take you across for a few pennies. But if you had cargo or you couldn't afford the fare, you would have to cross London Bridge. London Bridge was actually the only dry crossing over the Thames in London, in the London area, until the mid-18th century. So just to set the record straight before we go on, many people confuse London Bridge with Tower Bridge. Tower Bridge is the very famous bridge most people think of when they think of a bridge in London. It has the towers and it's right by the Tower of London. But London Bridge is further to the west, closer to St. Paul's. It's a very nondescript, plain looking bridge. But despite being so plain, London Bridge is the one with much more history. The Romans had built a wooden bridge in the same spot very early on, right around AD 50, but that was liable to be destroyed by fire. Most famously with Boudicca's rebellion, they destroyed the bridge. So in 1176, it was rebuilt in stone, and it was one of the wonders of medieval construction. 
It had 20 arches of squared stone, 30 feet wide, 20 feet apart. The piers were protected by these small islands. If you look in the picture, either for the album art for this episode, or if you go to the show notes at englandcast.com slash London Bridge, you will see these islands at the bottom. They were called starlings. It was islands of stone and brushwood. So that medieval bridge lasted until 1830. So those starlings were very successful at their job, but they accumulated debris and silt. And so the space between them would narrow. And that's also what helped to make those rapids so much stronger and so much more dangerous. So in the 1580s, new technology allowed the power of those rapids to be harnessed. So I'm going to read to you from a very excellent blog called The History of London by Peter Stone. Again, I'll link to it in the show notes. So he writes, and I'm quoting here, a Dutch hydraulics engineer by the name of Peter Morris, employed by Sir Christopher Hatton, demonstrated to the city authorities in 1581 how water could be fed into buildings supplying fresh water. He proved it by directing water from the Thames through lead pipes and over the steeple of St. Magnus Church in Lower Thames Street. His plan was to use the flow of the river through the first arch of London Bridge on the city end to power a wheel, turning pumps that lifted the water into a tank above the level of the surrounding houses. Then water from the tank could flow through pipes by gravity into the buildings. The authorities were actually so impressed by the demonstration that they gave Morris a 500-year lease. They charged him 10 shillings a year, and with that he could construct a water wheel-powered pump in the northern arch of the bridge. The first water to flow arrived at Leadenhall on Christmas Eve 1582, and it was followed by Old Fish Street. And it was such a success that the next year he was granted another lease for the second arch of the bridge. And from there, he was able to supply water to buildings in the surrounding area as far as Leadenhall. And actually, London's water bearers lobbied against the system because they thought it was going to put them out of work. But four water wheels were used after that at the bridge for the following two centuries. So check up on Peter Stone's blog. The History of London. I linked to it in the show notes to read up more about this. It's a really great blog to keep up with. So the designer of the bridge itself was Peter, chaplain of St. Mary Cole Church, and he put a huge chapel right in the middle of the bridge, which was dedicated to Thomas Becket, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who had so famously been killed six years before. As time went on, Thomas received sainthood and the cult around him grew. And Henry VIII then actually rededicated the chapel to St. Thomas the Apostle because he did not like Thomas Becket's defiance of royal supremacy. But it didn't really matter anyway, because by 1553, it was mostly destroyed. About a third of the way across the bridge, there was a, a drawbridge that could be raised to let ships through to the markets on the other side of the bridge, as far as Richmond and even beyond. But that drawbridge stopped working in the late 15th century. And then in 1500, Henry VIII decided to sail his royal ships under the bridge. The whole thing wound up breaking. And during the 16th century, the tower was taken down anyway, and the space was turned into a home. Something we think about when we think about London Bridge, at least I do, are the heads that they would display at the gatehouse as a warning to people as they were coming in from the south side. So that tradition actually started in 1305, when the head of the Scottish rebel William Wallace was displayed on the drawbridge tower that was a warning to other would-be rebels. And that tradition actually continued as far as until 1746. But after the drawbridge tower was taken down, those heads moved to the gatehouse. Um, It was on the first gate on the Southwark side. 
1599, the visitor Thomas Platter wrote that he saw stuck on tall stakes more than 30 skulls of noble men who had been executed and beheaded for treason and for other reasons. And their descendants are accustomed to boast of this, themselves even pointing out one of their ancestors' heads on the same bridge, believing that they will be esteemed the more because their antecedents were of such high descent that they could even covet the crown. Thus they make an honor for themselves of of what was set up to be a disgrace and an example. It's important to remember, too, that London Bridge had these buildings on all sides and all around it. So in many ways, it was simply an extension of the city itself. And it was possible to walk along the bridge without even really realizing that you were on a bridge. The bridge itself was so narrow, it wasn't more than 26 feet wide. You could only have a very small traffic area. The road was about 12 feet wide, divided into two lanes. The largest of the houses during the Elizabethan period was Nonesuch House. It was made of wood and gilded columns and carved galleries, and it extended over the river on both sides. It was actually built in Holland and then brought over like a prefab house to be put together on the site. And of course, they wouldn't have been able to work very much at night since there wasn't really any light. So it would have been built during the day, I would imagine, holding up traffic considerably. And traffic there was. Merchants would struggle to get home with herds of animals and carts and sightseers and street sellers. There were three gaps between the houses where you could look at the view, but those were the only places where you might even remember that you were on a bridge. By 1358, there were already 138 shops on London Bridge in a space of about 900 feet long. And that only grew through the Tudor period. In the 1550s, there were about 200 buildings on the bridge some of it which were as high as seven stories. So imagine all that traffic mixed with the huge mansions and the chapel and the gatehouse. Crossing the bridge could take up to an hour if you had to go across. Of course, going by the river would be much faster, but if you had goods to bring, you didn't have a choice. So you sat and you waited in traffic, which honestly makes traffic on the 101 in downtown LA seem like cake, to be honest. By the time John Stowe wrote his famous survey of London, he said that the bridge was replenished on both the sides with large, fair, and beautiful buildings, inhabitants for the most part, rich merchants, and other wealthy citizens, mercers, haberdashers, who would have had their shops on the bridge too. I imagine that the air out here would have been a bit cleaner than in the city as well, which also would have made it prime real estate. In 1746, when workmen were dismantling the old buildings, They found three pots of money, silver, and gold from the coin of Queen Elizabeth. So it would have been some kind of hoard that a merchant had left there. One of the advantages of living on the bridge was that you had an easy way to get rid of your waste, including, of course, your sewage. You would just dump it out the window and it would be carried away easy peasy, which, of course, might be another reason to not try to go under the bridge. You never knew what was going to be dumped on you. That led to the building of public privies on the bridge. Bridges were actually a really common place to build public latrines because they were so easy to clean up. In 1554, for example, in York, the wardens made a contract with a widow for keeping clean the conveniences on the bridge there. London Bridge had public latrines on since 1382, when the wardens of London Bridge spent £11 on building a public latrine on the north end of the bridge. And on that original medieval bridge, there was at least one Two entranced, multi-seated public latrine which overhung the bridge parapets and discharged into the river below, 
Of course, there was also an unknown number of private latrines reserved for the bridge householders, for the shopkeepers, and the bridge officials who were there all day. There were accidents on the bridge, of course. If you've ever read Edward Rutherford's London, a biography, and you really should, it's one of my favorite books of all time, you will remember a fictionalized story very similar to this that I think happened during the kind of medieval phase. It wasn't in the Elizabethan period, I don't think. It was a little bit earlier. Um, And John Stowe wrote about this, and it was an event that happened in the 1530s. It was funny because I was reading and I thought, I remember that, and it was fictionalized in this book. So if you've read that book, this will sound familiar to you. So in 1536, John Stowe writes, Sir William Hewitt was a merchant possessed of a great estate of 6,000 pounds per annum, having three sons and one daughter, Anne. The maid playing with her out of a window over the River Thames, which insert note here was really not a smart move, by chance dropped her in almost beyond expectation of her being saved. A young gentleman named Osborne, then apprentice to Sir William Hewitt, at this calamitous accident, leaped in and saved the child. In memory of which deliverance and ingratitude her father afterward bestowed her on the said Mr. Osborne with a very grand dowry. So, you know, you rescue your boss's daughter and you get to marry her with a dowry. So there we have it, some stories of London Bridge as a community of its own, bustling with all manner of people, tourists, merchants, and more, all inhabiting this medieval bridge. What a sight it must have been. To get a very small taste of how it may have felt, if you're ever near Bath, you can walk across Pulteney Bridge, which is one of only four bridges left in the world to have shops the whole way across. And it doesn't feel like you're walking over water at all until you happen to look out the window and see the water underneath you. It's a very disconcerting feeling. So if you're ever near Bath, check that out. So that's it for this week. Next week, we're going to head over west to Westminster. We'll talk about the actual walls of London and the suburbs, the gates of London, and what was going on outside those walls. And we'll walk over past the bend in the river to York Place and the Abbey. Again, remember the show notes for this episode are at englandcast.com slash londonbridge. Remember to get your Tudor Con tickets so you don't have FOMO and miss out next year at englandcast.com slash TudorCon2020. And also remember TudorFair.com for all of your Tudor gift giving needs. So I hope you're having a great week. You can get in touch with me through the listener support line at 801-6-TESCO or through Twitter at Tesco or Facebook.com slash EnglandCast. Thank you so much for listening. I will talk with you again soon. Bye. Blow northern wind, a scent who may be sweating. Blow northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hote bord in Bauerbrick, at solis semlis on seat. Men's cool maiden of meat, fair and freight of thunder. In all this wolf, ich won, bord of blood and of bone, never yet in Ulster. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.